Hello everyone, this is your brief reminder that this is a re-upload from several years ago, and more importantly, a big ol' spoiler warning. This is an episode about summons, so we talk about almost every game in the series, and we spoil uh, big parts in several of them. At one point, Ira just gives the big twist in Final Fantasy X away. We get into some stuff in 15 and 6 and 8 as well, big spoiler moments, so... If you haven't played those games, feel free to skip this one, come back to it. We don't spoil the endings of any of them, except 10, <laughs> really. Uh, but, you know, we it's a fun conversation uh, about all the different monsters. If you got to skip this one and come back, totally understand. And in fact, if you want to get right back uh, into the next episode where we begin on Final Fantasy 3, or you want to hear the episodes on 4, 5, 6, or 7, we've recorded up through all of that, and you can find them on Patreon at patreon.com slash ffweekly. And of course, more Final Fantasy content, other video games, Marvel and DC, Star Wars, and sports over at patreon.com slash dcproductions. Welcome to Final Fantasy Weekly. I'm Drew Creaseman. And I'm Ira Creaseman. And on this episode, we're going to take one more interlude moment to talk about something outside of the series proper. We're going to be talking about one of our favorite elements, one of everybody's favorite elements of the franchise, something that most people think of, one of the very first thing that comes to mind, something, of course, that we said in the last episode we'd be talking about because we left out our discussion of the summoner class in particular. Because they get their own episode. Well, kind of. Them and their fun monsters. Yeah, I like summoners. So, we're going to be talking about more than just the summoners, though, of course. The summons. And there's a lot to unpack here. There's a lot of stuff that's pretty indelible to the franchise. Again, a couple of them. It's my favorite word, but it's hard to separate. <laughs> if and Shiva from Final Fantasy. It's just hard to do. And it's also something that I think we've talked a lot about over the course of this podcast. One of the central themes to Final Fantasy is this combination of Eastern and Western sensibilities, of different types of storytelling, of fantasy and science fiction, of just combining unlike things and putting them into a unique world where suddenly it feels like it all fits together. And that may be nowhere more apparent than it is in summons. So why don't we start by reading a list that is probably not comprehensive of <laughs> Final Fantasy summons. Now, just so everyone's clear here, I'm going to read this list off the Final Fantasy wiki. It's not like I've got these memorized. Alexander, Amaratsu, Asura, Atomos, Bahamut, Bahamut Zero, Behemoth, Bismarck, Bomb, Brynhildr, which is also the, the princess in Final Fantasy II. Yeah. Yeah, and also a giant ship. Uh, Cactar, Ketshi, Carbuncle, Cataplipus, Chocobo, Diablos, Fairy, Fenrir, Garuda, Gilgamesh, Goblin, Golem, Hecatunchir, Ifrit, Ixion, Kirin, Lakshmi, Lamia, Leviathan, Lich, Medin, Magic Pot, the Magus Sisters, Midgur Surmer, Mishiva, Mughal, Neo Bahamut, Odin, Phoenix, Quetzalcoatl, Ragnarok, Raiden, Ramu, Remora, Shiva, Siren, Sasano, Sildra, Sif, Sylph, Tiamat, 
Titan, Tonberry, Typhon, Ultima, Unicorn, Valifor, and Zalera. And that's th those are the recurring summons, according to good old Final Fantasy Wiki. We've also got uh, the Cockatrice, the Mind Flayer, the Mist Dragon, and the White, the Sildra, Crusader, Quetzali, Maduan, Phantom, Seraph, Lakshmi, Valagarmanda, or Tritoch, as I first learned it, Zone Seeker. You can summon uh, Chocobo and Mog together in Final Fantasy VII, also Hades, Kujata, and the Knights of the Round. Badass. Yes. The Minotaur Brothers, Cerberus, Doom Train, Eden, Mini Mog, for some reason, Moomba, because why not, Pandemonia, Ark, Anima, Valifar, Yojimbo, and many, 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 many others. I'll run over the Final Fantasy XII ones in, in a little while. Let's take a break from listing for just a minute. I think you've done a fantastic job. Uh, those, of course, are just, like, that's getting started. It's amazing how many of these, and, and like we were talking about with the job classes, a lot of creativity, a lot of variety here, some redundancy. Yeah, sure. Some that would just show up in one game and then never again, which is always kind of interesting. And there are certain favorites that sure. have shown up. Some that were Knights maybe, of the Round, you mentioned. Yeah, the Knights of the Round. Some that were bosses that would show up as, as summons. And then summons, like the Knights of the Round, who would show up as bosses. Right. Gilgamesh. Gilgamesh. Has been both. And, and he's quite the character, too. So now that we've gotten our incomplete list by reading off the internet, yeah. let's discuss summoners in general. So they first appear in Final Fantasy III. You get a sort of pre-summoner in the Evoker, and then you get the summoner proper, and I think the Sage can also cast summon magic. I think the Sage can do everything. So uh, because the characters of Final Fantasy III, at least in the original version, are blank slate characters, there's not a lot to talk about there other than this was the beginning of summoners. Summoners and the summon monsters begin to take more of a, a story role in the next game, Final Fantasy IV. And even though I tend to not choose favorites, uh, there's, do it a, again. there's a soft place in my heart for Rydia. Not only because of her situation, but what happens to her as a young child. And then after she grows up in the land of the monsters and rejoins the team, she just becomes a really cool character. But also that theme, man. Yeah, I mean, it's a complete character with an arc with some of the best development in the series still. She's got the theme, the, the character design, two different ones. Right. And the honor and privilege of being the first story-driven summoner. It plays a major role in all of the events of Final Fantasy IV that she has this ability to not necessarily control, but speak with and work with these mystical beasts and that would become a major theme over and over and over again and I, I agree I think Rydia still stands as one of the best and most interesting characters in the franchise but yeah that was the first of them really deciding like when, I guess the first moment is when you go and fight her mother you find right. out later it's her mother but the mist dragon, the mist dragon. would be the first storyline summon monster and ironically one that doesn't show up a lot ever again it, it right. is in things i think it's in world of final fantasy okay. but, but of course that has everything so that doesn't really count but yeah the mist dragon did not become an ifrit or a shiva or an odin right the next game to have prominent summoners as main characters final fantasy 9 eco and garnet yes the, the summoner part of its character design usually has a horn of some kind usually it's something worn like in Final Fantasy Tactics, Final Fantasy III, 
But in the case of Iko, especially, it, it's growing right from her head. She has a horn growing from her yeah. head. And, spoiler alert, Garnet is a summoner. Something happened to her horn. Yeah. It's good stuff. Yeah. I really like those two characters, and I think most people do. Right. Um, Iko I- seems to get a pass. A lot of people tend to dislike the little kid character, whoever that might be. Poor Wesley Crusher. Uh, but Eco gets a pass for some reason. Why do you suppose that is? Maybe because she's like that next level. She's younger enough because she's not. I think people don't like the like 12 to 16 range. But if you're nine, you're like cute. All right. All right. And Vivi too, because Vivi's like eight or right. something. Yeah. Right. And so the, two. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Actually. Yeah. I think he's supposedly got the mental capacity of we're supposed to understand like an eight-year-old or ten-year-old boy but yeah he's no more than a year old and of course the summon monsters in final fantasy 9 eidolons eidolons eidolon i've always said eidolon it's a greek word right yeah yeah eidolons in greek mythology are these sort of idealized spirits sometimes of ancestors is it greek or roman Oh, gosh. It's the same thing at some point. It, they all, it becomes mixed together. All right. Uh, they stole and borrowed, from, as we've talked about, good artists borrow. Um, <laughs> but the Eidolons, Eidolon, in Final Fantasy IX play a major role in that story, including one of the best storyline sequences that just features these summoned beasts who we see in all the different games when, of course, Bahamut faces off against Alexander. Alexander! In Alexandria. One of the most memorable scenes, I think, in all of Final Fantasy history. And that was cool. The next summer we want to talk about is Yuna. Oh, yeah. Yes. Who also functions as a sort of exorcist. Yeah. Yeah. She does. She sends people's departed souls to the other side. Right, because otherwise they'll become... Fiends. Fiends. Fiends, what they call the monsters in that game. Ghosts Yuna's one of my fiends. favorite. Yeah, Yuna, Yuna's pretty cool. Uh, as much as I said, like, I like Ico and Garnett, and we're not getting into listing characters. We're not doing that because I'm not going to make my brother have a heart attack. Not in this episode. <laughs> but at some point, I'm probably going to force him to try to do that. Quick early indication, Yuna and Rydia, for me, are a step up in terms of their overall character arcs and developments and just the interesting facets of them. I think Yuna is one of the best characters in all of Final Fantasy, as is Rydia. And uh, her arc, even through Final Fantasy X-2, which I agree with a lot of the criticisms about that game, how great she was in X and some of the cool stuff from X-2, she's great. And, and her relationship, I think she maybe has the deepest relationship with all of her monsters yeah, Valifor in particular. You're right. Man, when she said, I can fly, my first thought was, no, no, you cannot. <laughs> right. uh, I was, my brother was right there, and he goes, yeah, she can. Yeah, she can. <laughs> oh, man. And, and again, another memorable sequence where it's like, these aren't just beasts you summon in battle. Ten was also the first time, though, that in combat you actually got to control them. They were yeah. more than just flashy magic spells. Right. They uh, showed up and hung around for a while. So I think that helped with the relationship between them, where they would all have an interaction with her as they would come out. Right. Speaking of flashy magic spells, yeah. the next summon I want to talk about is Noctis. People might not... What What do you mean, Noctis? Yeah, I'm... I really... Yeah, I'm going to... He's a summoner. I'm sticking with that. Yeah, he's totally a summoner. As the newly be-ringed king of Lucius, not only does he summon his weapons into battle, like a boss... 
we say like a boss still? No. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but he can uh, forge these compacts with the astrals. The first time, so when you're getting your butt kicked, the astrals are like, tag me in. Yeah. And Ramu shows up, 3,000 feet tall, and casts his judgment bolt and destroys like so 10... Good. A ten mile radius. I don't care how many times I saw that in trailers or played it in the demo. When it happened in the actual game, it was still awesome. I really loved the way they captured the scope of the Astrals, the Summons, the Espers, the Eidolons <laughs> in that game. Noctis is a summoner and again plays an important role in the story, even going back to the Kingsglaive right. film. Well, and one of the interesting things I think about their summoning magic and making these compacts with the astrals and their their ancestors and whatnot is that they then give their power, they can they can loan some of their power to their buddies. So that's where the King's Glaive comes in. That's where Noctis and his brotherhood come in. He, they can give some of their power over so that they can also summon their weapons. They can't summon the astrals, but they can still pull from, what, the ether. Yeah. The, the nether sphere, the nether site. Yeah. No, wrong game. Let's talk about the monsters, though. Yeah. So the, the monsters that you can summon as summoners, evokers, and whatnot first appear in Final Fantasy III, but they are, as you said earlier, they're basically just flashy spells. They don't have a story role until Final Fantasy IV. So as we've already talked about, these summon monsters, which in remakes would be referred to as Eidolons, part of the standardization effort they've made in some of their remakes. Fair enough. So there's the town of the summoners, and the king of Baron, who in previous episodes we talked about as not actually being the king of Baron, but one of the four fiends of that world. Fiends! Has sent you, Cecil Harvey and Kane Highwind, to deliver a message from the king of Baron, and that message is we're going to burn this mother down. And it's basically an attempt to wipe out the summoners because the fiends know that the summoners pose a severe threat to their attempt to take over the world. So, the only one to survive after you've killed her mother via killing the Mist Dragon is Rydia. And Rydia, originally, or as the little girl version, she can't summon someone. She can only... Like, she can summon him, but there, it's a powered-down version. Then, at some point, she is swallowed by Leviathan, because that's what Leviathans do, right. being a biblical reference. Right. Uh, and taken to the land of monsters where she learns to, where she gains a, a better understanding of the monsters and she forges relationships with them. Uh, sometimes you have to fight some of those monsters to get them to join your cause. Uh, and, and she comes back grown up and ready to kick some tukas. And she, she's really cool. So they don't play uh, a strong role, but it's definitely one of the lands you visit in Final Fantasy IV in your attempt to put a stop to. Zeramus and his nonsense from the moon. Why don't you talk to us about the storyline role of summon monsters in Final Fantasy VI? 1,000 years ago, yes. the War of the Magi. Doom, I mean, doom, it begins... Doom. Right. I the, the very first thing before there's even, I suppose, what we'd call a spoken line of dialogue, though, of course, no voice acting on the Super Nintendo. But before a character says anything... We are given the story of the war between the humans and the espers. And that is the backdrop upon which arguably the best story in the history of RPGs has ever been told. So it sets up the another one of our favorite themes, the lack of technology or the lack of a bunch of technology. The reason why we're in a steampunk type environment as opposed to maybe a cyberpunk one. 
and the lack of magic in the world, which is something we'll see in a lot of different fantasy things. It's another Game of Thrones thing where sure. dragons are gone. When Game of Thrones begins, there are no dragons, there is no magic, the White Walkers. All this stuff is considered to be myth, legend. And this is a common thing. From a more modern technological era, the recent retelling of the DC storyline on the CW, Arrow starts out with little to no magic and or metahumans, and that just begins to grow and grow and grow. And eventually there are aliens, and we eventually figure out, again, spoilers, that Oliver Queen has met Constantine and does know about magic. But then Damien Dark shows up and, and the Flash, and, and there's multiple dimensions. Right. And so similarly, Final Fantasy VI begins in a world where, you know, people are, one of, again, talking about some favorite scenes when Terra first casts magic in front of Locke and Edgar and in the middle of battle they flip out because they've never seen somebody use magic before. And setting the stage in that way, and it reminds you the importance of the vanquishing, the, the genocide in, in many ways, and then the separation of the espers. And before you ever get that answer from one of them, Ramu, about, yeah. I don't know, maybe about a third of the way through the game. I don't know I, exactly. I, I I'd say, have to, in my mind, that's about how far. I, I tend to think of it about halfway through the first half or maybe two-thirds of the way through the first half. Yeah, something like that. But after Terra has morphed into an Esper, though we don't know that that's what she's done, and goes flying off into the night and you track her down in the city of Zozo. Um, right, yep, yep, the city of liars. <laughs> correct. Uh, you finally get to the top of that tower and Ramu explains the war between the humans and the espers from the espers' perspective, everything that happened, and explains, finally, we understand that Terra is the daughter of a human and an esper, showing that there can be coexistence between the two. And then the sad thing that we also learn in that same scene is that Magicite, the oh, thing that yeah. the, the material, the stone, the orb, the crystal, right, right, that the Empire has been producing in order to achieve ultimate weapon domination over the world comes from espers who die. Right. That's sort of crystallized essence. Final Fantasy VI, like in Final Fantasy IV, they get their own world. It is also interesting that in Final Fantasy VI, Terra, one of our main characters, is the offspring of a human and an esper. The espers aren't really treated as godlike. There are goddesses, but that's a different thing in Final Fantasy VI. But uh, if we take espers to be understood as deity-like, then that makes Terra, whose mother's name is Madonna, Jesus, right? Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of really strong symbolism and imagery to suggest that she is at least Masonic. Sure. No. No. Messiahic. Masonic. Or, yeah, those are the stone <laughs> yeah. layers. Yeah. Stone builders. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that, that she is... Illuminati confirmed. <laughs> but she is in some way, I think, supposed to be a stand-in for a Messiah-type yeah. character. Also a reluctant one, similar to Jesus and... Well, and considering the, the summoned monsters often take their names from various deities and mythological figures, it's, I think, no mistake that Terra takes on that particular role. Sure. In Final Fantasy VIII, the Guardian Forces. A lot of people hate this. Again, spoiler, we do not. <laughs> 
Like, there's very little hate going on here. Disagreement, perhaps, yeah. about lists and favorites, but not a lot of hate. So, yeah, the Guardian Forces of Final Fantasy VIII. Can you explain to me again? They were all brothers and sisters. That's that's right. There's okay. So there's something cool. Something we've talked about uh, a couple of times on this podcast is like the consequences of you, the player, the hand of fate, the you know choices that you make just by picking up the controller and playing the game. One of the things that you have to do to progress in Final Fantasy VIII is a system. Again, a lot of people hated that I thought was cool as hell. The junction system, and part of that is using guardian forces to help you junction magic and summon them in battle and they boost all your skills and help you you grow into a much more powerful being. But then as it turns out, and I'm not sure this is perfectly executed, but at the base of it I love the idea that the act of summoning creatures and of having these guardian forces as a part of their lives and of using magic and junctioning and all of this, it had a consequence, right? which was the loss of their memory. right? And it did turn out that, yeah, all of these people knew each other as kids, which I understand is a big stretch for everybody, that they grew up in the same orphanage and that the bad guy to that point, Sorcerer Sadia, turns out was their caretaker. Right. Mother-ish, mother figure, yeah. It's all very strange, but, but I do... Well, but the link there is Sid, so when we get yeah. into Final Fantasy VIII, we can, we can discuss more whether or not this makes sense, or whether or not Squall is... Dead? Dead. But with regards to summons, I think, I agree, I think this is an interesting way to take it, because the, in the junction system, you're, they're junctioning them to their consciousness, so that they can control them. And that it has a consequence is... I mean, if you're going to summon monsters and deities and demons and spirits from another world yeah there should be a consequence it's not on the same level but every time I see especially like Bahamut summons or the big ones that you know they're shooting down beams from outer space I'm like you better be really specific and careful about where you're aiming that thing there could be people over there honestly (laughs) so it's not that like obviously those aren't the consequences and we've always talked about we're willing to accept a complete separation from certain sure. kinds of realism. Sometimes it's a representation, not not an actual right. thing. But I liked that twist in Final Fantasy VIII that the Guardian forces that, you know, your favorite beasts to summon in battle, there's a consequence to it. So in Final Fantasy IX, the, the summon monsters don't play that big a role, except as we've already talked about, Bahamut versus Alexander. Yeah. When that whole city just comes alive. Yeah. Holy cow. Yeah. Such good. Many feels. In Final Fantasy X, they play a pretty big role. Because the the summoners in Final Fantasy X, spoiler, 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 they're basically, they all know that what they are competing to do is to die. Right. What they don't know is what they're competing to do is become sin. Yeah. <laughs> Which is in itself, I guess, a summon in a way, like the ultimate summon of right. it, and then it comes back. Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty tragic story. And so, yeah, the whole game, though, is built around the pilgrimage. The whole game is built around Yuna's story, which is before she can go and defeat Sin, she has to travel to each of these temples of Spira, and she has to win over the favor of, they're called Aeons in Ten. Right. Uh, so another, a new word that means same basic thing, but still getting a little creative with it. But these beings are, again, center to their faith, the faith of Yu Yevon. Right. And it is 
Yeah, they're essentially each plot point. You go from temple to temple, uh, picking up the summons as your major goals along the way before the story gets really crazy at the end. And so, yeah, I love in Final Fantasy X how it's pretty much built around going and getting each of the summons. And then, it, of course, like it does with everything else in that game, there's a big dagger twist at the end because mm -hmm. you have mm -hmm. to sacrifice them. Right. And it, <laughs> along yeah. with everyone else, along, they get sacrificed. Yeah. Yeah. Not to mention Oron and Titus. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and there are some beautiful renditions of them in that game. Some of my favorite iterations of the summons are in 10, including, I think, both Ifrit and Shiva. Is that the one where Shiva, after she freezes them, does the snap. snaps her fingers? Yep. That's, yeah. that's badass in a way that... Yeah. yeah. Ixion's cool. Oh, the lightning unicorn. I love the lightning unicorn. But we're going to talk about... Yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so so moving on down to their roles in various storylines. Ixion's temple is really cool. Sorry. Remember walking over that big bridge into the lightning oh, temple? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah the next one. So again, we're going to skip over 11 because we were bad online people at the time and we didn't do that. I got to admit, I'm still not real fond of playing with people I don't know online because online people can be... Awful. Yeah. Yes, they can. <laughs> but but that does mean that there's this big Final Fantasy eleven shaped gap in our Final Fantasy experience. If anybody who's listening has familiarity with Final Fantasy eleven and wants to school us, that'd be fantastic. Yeah, that'd be great. Final Fantasy twelve gets really interesting because, of course, 12 is an oddity in the bunch. 11 was an oddity for being an MMO. 12 is an oddity because it has more in common with Final Fantasy Tactics and games like Tactics Ogre and Vagrant Story. Right. And one of the Ivalis... Ivalis Alliance, I believe That's right, called. the Ivalis Alliance. Done by a different group of creative workers. Yasumi Matsuno and Akihiko Yoshida. It's like they are the Hironobu Sakaguchi and Yoshitaka Amano of Final Fantasy Tactics and Final Fantasy XII. They have a different look and feel for that reason. And they have, though they do use the word espers. Yeah, absolutely. Which I think is fantastic. But their espers are based on something else entirely. As we've been talking about, there are a lot of common... You're going to see Ifrit, Shiva, Bahamut, Alexander. You guys know the ones. If you're listening to this, you know the ones you're regularly going to see. And you know what I'm getting at here, too. But in 12, the summons are based on the Zodiac Stones, which, of course, play a huge role in and, their story. And not in the Chinese Zodiac, which you might assume because China is just across the sea from Japan. No, no, no. This is the Western Zodiac. We gotta combine stuff. The other thing I like is that in 12, and uh, they would go back and do this in tactics as well, is have they all have titles. That's right. <laughs> this is pretty cool. So you have Belias the Gigas, Chaos the Walker of the Wheel. Oh, I should do it this way. Belias the Gigas, whose zodiac sign is Ares the Ram. You have Chaos the Walker of the Wheel, whose zodiac sign is Taurus the Bull. Zalera, the Death Seraph, whose zodiac sign is Gemini, the Twins. Gemini for life. Zeramus, the Condemner, who is Cancer, the Crab. Hashmal, the Bringer of Order, Leo, the Lion. Ultima, the High Seraph, Virgo, the Virgin. Exodus, the Judge, Saul, Libra, the Scales. Chuchulain, the Impure, who is Scorpio, the Scorpion. I always love Chuchulain whose character design remind me a lot of the Oogie Boogie Man from The Nightmare Before Christmas. <laughs> if I could interrupt uh, Absolutely. On, on a point of pronunciation, 
that is a an old Irish god, and I'm pretty sure it's pronounced Cúchulain. Cúchulain. Fantastic. Also, is Zeramus? Zeramus is the bad guy in Final Fantasy IV. The, uh, the Lunarian who wants to take over the world through his former compatriots' children. Yeah. And then the last few here, we've got Shem Hazi. Hazai? Sure. That's got to be Shem Hazai, the Whisperer, Sagittarius. You've got Adromalek, the Wrath, another one I absolutely love the character design for, who is the Capricorn. Famfrit, the Darkening Cloud, who is Aquarius. And Mateus, who, of course, shares his name with the Emperor from Final Fantasy II, the Corrupt, Pisces the Fish. And the 13th was Zodiac, Keeper of the Precepts, uh, or Keeper of Precepts, uh, who doesn't have a zodiac sign really because he was cast out for being too powerful not for there's a whole weird story arc behind like final fantasy 12 super complicated the only way to really briefly talk about them in story is that it's similar to final fantasy 10 where you find them in temples they guard great power some of them are optional most of them are a part of progressing through the plot from step to step but uh and and then there's a whole deal with them and the Lukavi. And there's a lot about, as we talked about in Final Fantasy One, free will and do the gods and the deities behind the scenes control too much power. The summons in this game, the espers, were cast out by the other gods. And that's why they're helping you to rebel against them for helping Vain Solidor try to control all of humanity and not allow there to be free will. Everyone keep up with all that? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but they are knights or, or warriors in the battle for free will. So part of a big conversation we've had before. They don't play a huge role in Final Fantasy XIII. Each Lassie, who is a member of your party, gets their own Eidolon to help them with their focus, to, uh, yeah, to help further the various false seas, various agendas, yeah. for whatever reason they got going on. This not, is, not that that game's lore and plot are particularly dense or anything. Right. <laughs> not that you didn't have to read a book in-game to figure out what was going on. Yeah. Uh, yeah. One of the coolest things I think about this, that if I recall correctly, a lot of people hated, Shiva's a motorcycle? Yeah. Well, they're all vehicles of some kind. They're all, like, that, rideable? Oh, that's right. Even Hope's riding around on Alexander. It's the giant fortress strange. It is peculiar, yeah. I didn't hate it. Lightning gets to ride Odin's, Odin. And, and Odin becomes the horse slugger. Yeah, so yeah. There's, that's clearly and objectively awesome. Again, we've talked about the difference between subjective and objective. And Lightning riding Odin, who is transformed into his own horse Sleipnir, is I would like to see awesome. your rubric for objective awesomeness. I'll work on that. I want that on my desk Monday morning. <laughs> <laughs> In Final Fantasy XIV, these summons are referred to as primals. Now, look, we did not tough it out through the, again, objectively broken first iteration of Final Fantasy XIV. No. Very few people did. If you did, and you want to write us about the storyline importance of the primals in the original iteration of the game... I would love to see that. One thing... Didn't that only last for like a year or two? Yeah. They took it down pretty quick. Year, year and a half. But I think Midgar Sorm, who you talked about in the beginning, mm -hmm. is the gigantic 
who I thought was a version of Bahamut watching that intro oh, right, in the right. next game. That's eventually trapped in the moon. Correct. For uh, Final Fantasy XIV. Realm Reborn. Realm Reborn, right. But I believe that is a primal. Right. And they let a primal blow up their actual world. So right. summons are so important to this franchise that at one point they actually let one of them destroy an actual game. Right, right, right. <laughs> and, and the first one you get if you play the, oh, it's the Arcanist, right? The Arcanist can become the summoner mm -hmm. in Final Fantasy XIV. And the Arcanist can get a summon monster, a carbuncle. Or a, you can get the green carbuncle or the yellow carbuncle. And you can switch between them and they have their different benefits and detriments. And that's the same for Final Fantasy XI. The little bit that I did play, the first thing you got as, an, uh, as a summoner was the carbuncle. And in Final Fantasy XV, and we'll talk a little bit more about that here momentarily, but if you got to play that prologue, Carbuncle. Carbuncle. That I, prologue was cool. I love Carbuncle. I really like, again, in fifteen. that's a new iteration of him, too. It's right. a new take. Carbuncle's one of the ones I think that's had the most kind of different well, and forms. He's, yeah, and, and he's got the, uh, or the, or the Carbuncle, usually it's like a gem, like a cut gem and set in the forehead of the of the green cat dog rabbit creature but in final fantasy 15 he's got a little ruby horn taking on i think the summoner's horn right which is a fun reversal of that uh that design yeah carbuncle's great <laughs> So just to expand a little bit more on the summon monsters' importance into the story of Final Fantasy XV, the various monsters, there's the Titan is living below the crater. That was so cool. <laughs> that was so cool. Yeah, and it's like making the news reports, which one of the radio reports that just show up are really cool. And then people are freaking out because what's going to happen to the crater and are we still going to have our geothermal power because that whole town runs on geothermal. Yeah, getting Ramu and, and lighting up the place... Shiva on the train ride. Mm -hmm. You find the dead god Shiva. Mm -hmm. That's wild. Fighting Leviathan. Oh, you know what, Leviathan? Curse you. You, you know what you did. You, oh, Ignis. Leviathan's one of those uh, ones that has been a boss as many times as he's been a summon. He's yeah. important to the Leviathan franchise. often dismisses humanity as unworthy because Leviathan is monstrous and swallows humans on more than one occasion. Right. In this case... Luna Freya. Yeah. Leviathan... You didn't have to do that to Luna Freya. That battle was epic. It was, and I did it very poorly. <laughs> yeah, that was really epic. And Shiva's encounter with Ifrit near the end is just... Uh, I've heard criticisms sometimes lobbied at Final Fantasy spin-offs as being like poorly written fan fiction or something like that. That was like the absolute best written fan fiction I've ever seen. <laughs> like, well, her demeanor throughout, you event, there's this character who's following you around, occasionally shows up in Prompto's pictures for, mm -hmm. and, and you didn't know she was there. Yeah. And she's just sort of like this mysterious oracle guide person. No, no, no. This is like the last surviving bit of Shiva's soul. Uh yeah. Such a cool twist. Yeah, that was cool. And and I think the fact that for whatever reason, through whichever iteration, anyone, most of the people playing that game had some relationship with the Shiva character over the years just sure. made it that much more impactful. Like, it had been a good piece of storytelling anyway, I think, but 
that's something you can do when you're a franchise like this, and it, it holds that much more weight. The last game I want to talk about, maybe there's another one you want to do, but the last one I want to talk about where uh, summon monsters play an important role is World of Final Fantasy. And I know some of you who love Final Fantasy but maybe don't like the spinoffs because they're silly might be thinking, eh, that looked kind of dumb. It's not dumb. It's really quite well done. I love there it a lot. There are parts of it that are dumb, and it can be <laughs> off-putting right off the bat, I will say. there's the, And I've grown to love her, but Tama... Oh, the little fox critter? Yeah. Yeah, it, it takes a little... I understand that. But the Ramu, Shiva, and Ifrit are definitely characters in this game and their interactions with each other and with your main characters. And again, they take that attitude of we are, you know, we're deities of a sort. You know, we are very powerful and you are weak and we used to know you when you were stronger and pfft, I don't have to do what you say. Their interactions are a lot of fun and the roles they play... And then when later there's like different versions of them running around, like, oh, no, we can't let that happen. There's a lot of fun to be had with that storyline. So if you've never, if you've been avoiding Final Fantasy or World of Final Fantasy because it looks kind of kiddy and silly, I get it. But it's definitely worth it. Absolutely agree. And you reminded me of another kind of interesting category of summons. Another trio that appears in World of Final Fantasy that oftentimes are not explicitly summons, but they've been summons in many of the different games. Moogles. Moogles. Cactar. Tonberries. Tonberry. Chocobo. I love me a Chocobo. And you will see these characters again. Sometimes, I mean, Mog, playable character in your party. Sometimes you mentioned Choco Mog. You know, Fat Chocobo, a lot of people enjoy good, uh-huh. funny, uh-huh. fat Chocobo. There are versions, different versions of summoning that, and then just summoning giant Cactar uh-huh. uh, to do 10,000 right. needles instead of 1,000. Yeah. But uh, again, those those characters don't always appear as summons, so I don't know if they, strictly speaking, would count in that category. They get their own, almost. They, well, they, again, we've, we've talked about some of the summons become bosses, some of the bosses become summons, some of the monsters become summons... Someone summons become monsters. So I think it's a fun, uh, interesting Venn diagram. Are Venn di- diagrams fun and interesting? No. <laughs> I think it's a fun and interesting Venn diagram of when is a creature a, a summon, when is it a an enemy, when is it a character, when is it a boss. I think that's, uh, that's a lot of fun. Yeah. Why don't we now jump into uh, understanding some of the individual summons, their history as it pertains to Final Fantasy, and the etymological history, the cultural history, you know, where some of these creatures come from, where maybe just their name comes from, and then they deviate from their namesake. Who shall we talk about first? I think we got to start up front with two. And I think having just said that, everyone knows where I'm going. They're not necessarily... The most famous, in fact, I think some people might put the King of Dragons all the way up number one. That even seems to be a consensus. But I'm starting with two. Ifrit and Shiva. Ifrit and Shiva. And that may be because the first game I ever completed in the series, Final Fantasy VI, and they have that interaction. They do? They are almost inseparable. Uh Uh-huh. And 
they are themselves almost inseparable from the franchise. So what is an Ifrit? In Persian mythology, an Ifrit is a sort of demon genie. It sort of depends. There are lots of different types of jinn, Ifrit being one of them. Jinns, genies, somebody who is more well-versed in Persian folklore, I'm sure, could let me know about all the different categories. It is usually a sort of fire-based creature. So this is one of those that Final Fantasy did not mess with too much. In Final Fantasy, Ifrit tends to be a bestial biped with fire powers, tends to be more aggressive. Shiva, on the other hand, is, is an ice goddess in Final Fantasy, but in Hindu mythology, Shiva is one of the principal deities, part of a, a sort of trinity, Brahma, uh, Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva, the creator, preserver, destroyer. And, and Shiva, when I say destroyer, it's not like Shiva's the bad guy. Non-Christian mythology tends not to deal so strongly in stark good and evil. Yeah. Shiva is more about transforming. So in, in the same way that we always, uh, you know, humanity keeps moving toward change, the world does not remain the same as it was. It's also the conservation of energy, right? Energy can't be created or destroyed. It can only be transformed. And that's Shiva. In Final uh, Fantasy, of. she's an ice lady. Right. In Final <laughs> Fantasy, she's feminine rather than masculine, and she's an ice lady. She is the yin to Ifrit's yang, to borrow from another... I know, right? Wow, there's a lot of cross-culturalism happening in, in there. Right. But yeah, I think, again, it's just like, oh, yeah, it's a different interpretation. We like all of that stuff. We're not trying to, you know... They've got... We talked about Merilith, 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 however uh -huh, you want to uh -huh. say it. There are other direct references to that kind of Hinduism, but for whatever reason, when they took the name Shiva, they decided to go with Ice Lady. And I do think a lot of it probably had to do with those early days in the games of them wanting to have a balance. You've got the fire demon, and as you said, representation of masculinity and you know strength and power, and then you've got Shiva, a more representation of femininity and... Uh, magic and sure the, the yin is usually darkness secretiveness passivity femininity and the yang is usually aggressiveness light masculinity and giant fireballs raining from the sky <laughs> i may have i may have mixed up that, that last one throw that in there so we, we already talked about some of the different versions of shiva she's usually a scantily clad woman with blue skin who does not need to dress warm in the snow because she is the snow winter is coming <laughs> and her name is Shiva, and sometimes she's a motorcycle. Ifrit's usually, like we said, a sort of demon-looking thing with, with all sorts of fire. And while you talked about the, the duo of those two, I think they really are uh, a trinity with Ramu and his lightning ways. So I'm not sure if Ramu has a world mythology counterpart or, or parallel. He's also called Indra in one of the games. I can't recall which one off the top of my head. He's always struck me, though, as, as a very Zeus-like character because he's got the big flowing beard and he's kind of a Caucasian-looking dude and, uh, you know, the lightning. He's also the one who sometimes you have to fight these monsters in order to get them to join you, in order to have them allow you to summon them into combat. Ramu, though, is usually the one who wants to test your mental capacity uh, or he wants to give you, you know, the history of the War of the Magi. Tends to be more helpful than the others. Right. He's not as aggressive. He's a little more wise. He's a little more about, are we doing this for the right reasons? And what can you show me about your worthiness that doesn't involve punching harder? 
Yeah. The next one on our list is pretty easy to suss out the origins of, especially now that the Marvel That's movies right. have taken off as so popular. Not that people didn't know who Odin was before. Right. Anthony Hopkins slash Ian McShane. Correct. However, the yeah, the Odin character or the Odin summon, I should say, is clearly a direct homage reference to the Norse Allfather Odin. Yeah, they didn't they didn't mess with him like they messed with Shiva. He's usually even missing an eye. He's got his six-legged horse, the Slepner. He's got his spear, the Gungner. They did give him a Japanese sword, the Zentsetsuken. Correct. Did I uh, Yeah, I think you nailed it. Nice. Go me. Yeah, so again, you got to get a little bit of some other culture in there. He can't just be of one culture. That wouldn't be Final Fantasy. No, yeah, we we got to mix things up. For some reason, Odin not always, but typically was used not as, like the other one, someone you can call on whenever you want. He shows up when he likes he does and does do his damage. He also does, in, in some of the games, he uh, he's an instant kill. So if there are enemies that are immune to instant kills, it won't do anything. Right. Though then, then there was a game, and I can't remember which, where if they could be instant killed, he would use the Zentsetsuken, and then if uh, they could not, then he would use the Gungnir Spear. Right. Uh, and then, of course, famously... Had a run-in with Cypher in Final Fantasy VIII. Yeah, how about Cypher? Got himself Zensetsukened. Yeah, he did. That was kind of stunning. Yeah. And then replaced with another enemy who becomes a summon, who becomes a character who sometimes helps you. Kind of a buffoon, but also kind of a badass, sometimes with six arms. Gilgamesh! He's in a class of his own. He, yeah, he clash on the big bridge and then clashes on other big bridges. Uh, he, he shows up in World of Final Fantasy to great comedic effect, but also is awesome. Sometimes he's got the Genji equipment. Yep. yep. In 12, that's a big deal. So, yeah, Gilgamesh is awesome. Again, uh-huh. fantastic character design. Brilliant piece of music that follows him everywhere that he goes. Enigmatic. Right. We'll say. We'll go with Enigmatic. Sure, Enigmatic's fine. He oftentimes has... Various legendary swords, but then sometimes not. He's got the Excalibur, except sometimes it's the Excalibur. Four. He's got the Masamune, Correct. sometimes. I think in Final Fantasy VIII, after Odin was taken out and he avenged Odin's death, he took the Zantsetsuken. I believe so. Okay. Yeah. Uh, love that character and his reappearance and his sort of... He's also one of the characters that lends a ton of credence to the theory that all of these games take place if not even in the same universe, maybe even on the same planet, years and years apart or sure. in different iterations. Final Fantasy XIV's Rebirth also lends a ton of credence to that idea, too. Right. They talk about all the different astral ages, but yeah. the fact that Gilgamesh appears to be roughly the same character who's jumping and traveling from place to place somehow, and it's messing with his mind, maybe. Right. <laughs> well, but then... Isn't there, aren't there some clear allusions to a multiverse? Yes. Yeah, so... And I'm almost certain, we'll do a whole podcast on this, but I'm almost certain that 7 and 10 do take place on the exact same planet, that 10 takes place a long time before 7. That sounds like another interlude episode. Yeah. All right. We'll do that. Along with Squall being dead. Yeah. Okay. All right. Let's talk about all that. Before we move on from Gilgamesh, as we've been talking about etymology and all that, of course, I'm sure most people know the Epic of Gilgamesh is the oldest discovered writing 
of humanity. I do believe that that's correct. I could be wrong about that, but maybe there's a certain it has to be of a certain length, like not right. cave drawings, like right. like a novel, a, a story that we've been able to decipher. Right. I'm sure there are yeah there are a bunch of qualifiers to it, but it's the oldest of you know. Something. Yeah, it's like the, the, the oldest story we know of. Belgamesh right. and Echidnu and, and all of that going on. Pumbaba, who shows That's up right, in Final Pumbaba. Fantasy VI. Uh, oh, and Enkidu does show up at uh, Gilgamesh's side from time to time as right. the dog at one point. Right. Uh, which is How did Echidnu the wild man a, become a dog? Well, I guess I get that. I, yeah, that sort of makes a certain amount of sense, right? But, all right. And certainly Final Fantasy as stories of people who set off from their hometown in search of adventure with a close companion and that's all of what Gilgamesh is about and so it's pretty cool that they, they've worked him in there and managed to make him an indelible part of their franchise where I'm sure there are a lot of people who know Gilgamesh from Final Fantasy who have no idea that it's an ancient story. Well then they should have been paying attention in English class because we tried to tell you. <laughs> Look, every time I see on Facebook somebody complaining about they had no idea about something that they should have learned in high school, we have classes for a lot of that stuff. <laughs> Let's move on to another thing that there might be classes about. And you actually mentioned this earlier, but is the Leviathan's role, which comes out of the Bible, a very, very important piece of human literature that you can't do something like this and have all the cultures and religions of the world and not take a couple things from the Bible. You just can't. Sure, and and there are other biblical images and iconography used throughout the series, but as far as... As summons go, which is the subject of this podcast, no matter how many tangents we get on. That's right. Uh, yeah, the Leviathan is is that particular summon. The Leviathan tends to look down on humanity, tends to think of humanity as small and insignificant and often swallowable, not unlike Pinocchio and Geppetto. <laughs> which also, speaking of Final Fantasy, does show up in Kingdom Hearts. Right. Monstro. I know, that's like... A pretty meta moment. You've got the whole situation. You know what we haven't talked about? The summons in Kingdom Hearts. Oh, man. That doesn't... No, because they're all from Disney movies. Well, fair enough. But it is worth mentioning that there are dragons. Correct. And genies. Correct. <laughs> oh, man. That's almost a whole other podcast when we talk about Kingdom when Hearts. When we get to Kingdom Hearts, we will revisit the summon issue. Those games are brilliant. So, yeah. Leviathan, a biblical reference, uh, a giant sea serpent... The Phoenix. I like Phoenixes. Yeah, who didn't like Phoenix? Phoenix Down? Phoenix, Phoenix Down, Down is, is man's important. best friend. If only Phoenix Down worked on commoners in the <laughs> land yeah. of Ivalis, yeah. we could have avoided a lot of heartache. <laughs> but the Phoenix, another one of those, uh, not original to Final Fantasy. There have been Phoenixes right. and plenty of other literature throughout I'm the years. I'm pretty, well, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Modern and not so much. I'm pretty sure that's a, a creature out of Egyptian mythology first that also shows up in Greek mythology because Egypt and Greece aren't really that far from each other on a global scale. And then they show up throughout fantasy literature, not least of which Harry Potter, other things. <laughs> also other stuff, too. In Pokemon, sort of, with the they have those three elemental birds again: lightning, ice, and fire. In the Articuno, Zapdos, and Moltres, and then they get their own version of Tritoch in like the Lugaya, who controls those three. Yeah. So, so how about Tritoch? Can you remember it, its other name off the top of your head without looking at our notes? No. Nope. Starts with a V. Veramunda. Va- Valagam- Gal- Valagamugla. The, the, it's Tritoch. 
Tritoch. From Final Fantasy VI. From Final Fantasy VI. The first one you see, it plays a role in right. Act One. The opening, oh, the very first thing you do, you she walks up and right. starts talking to it, and Biggs and Wedge go, well, bye-bye. I'm pretty sure they go to Chrono Trigger. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> they, go, they go to the Millennial there's, Fair. There's another one for the Fan Theory episode. Oh, my goodness. Why Speaking not? of multiverses, they get, Chrono Trigger and Chrono Cross um, are all about. So Tritoch beams Biggs and Wedge atop that big satellite in Final Fantasy VIII. And then begins to talk to Tara. <laughs> right, and that music playing behind that conversation Such is... Such good. <laughs> Another World of Beasts, I, I believe, is the title of that track. Another one that made a fantastic appearance in the most recent game that just had my nostalgia, but this is still new. Again, combining two things, like, this is a brand new version of this character. Titan, dude, in 15, yes. As you talked about, everything that Titan did... One that doesn't show up in every game, as we've talked about a little bit, but fire, ice, lightning, much more pivotal to right. combat and, and usually the story of these games, where the earth element, not mm -hmm. always, but sometimes very important. Earth, water, and air. When we're talking about the classic four elements of Avatar The Last Airbender, a series Drew still hasn't seen, please hey, send him Twitter. I haven't seen Game of Thrones, so you can get on us both. <laughs> But right, yeah, so so earth, water, and air tend to be a little overlooked, except in the summons. So you got Leviathan, who we already talked about, and Titan for Earth. And they get titles in 15. What was his title? So it was Titan the Archean outside that, that town that likes its geothermal energy. That was a really cool moment. That was a moment where I one of the things I really like about that whole scenario is Noctis is really down on himself. Like, you know, this is my fault. Dad's dead. I'm supposed to be in charge. And Gladiolus is like, dude. You need to get your stuff together because we're counting on you. Right. Uh, and and that whole fight and being able to block his giant fists with that summoned sword. Yeah. Titan is cool. also uh, pivotal in Final Fantasy IV because Rydia, when she wakes up and sees, oh, here are these two Imperials who came and wrecked my town and tried to commit genocide, she accidentally summons Titan, and that's when Cain goes missing, and that's when Cain returns to the Empire. Sort of. Sort of. And so for cultural sources, Titan uh, is a reference to the Titans of Greek mythology. Sure. None of whom was specifically an earth-wielding monster, but who had, you know, who had I a think variety of... There were a variety of Titans who had a variety of portfolios, if you want to go down the D&D &D terminology <laughs> path. And I think also, maybe if, if anything, uh, the most direct reference to Atlas, who's sure. supposed to be holding the world on his shoulders, Titan oftentimes is seen lifting up a big right. piece of the earth right. up over his shoulders to drop on somebody or whatever. So I think, yeah, reference there. How about samurai bodyguards? Yojimbo. I love Yojimbo. I don't know what else much more to say about Yojimbo. I just love the character He's got design. a cool countenance. Yeah. He's got a dog. He uh, makes Yuna pay for his services. Yeah, that's a fun little wrinkle in that system that you got to pay him. And depending on what you pay him, he'll do different things. But, yeah, I just love everything about the look and feel of that character beyond that. Uh, obviously, a uh, Yojimbo coming out of the uh, Kurosawa tradition, Yojimbo being one of his most famous films. I assume that's a direct reference to that and samurai culture in general, but it's not. Right. And, and it's interesting how infrequently this Japanese-based company pulls directly from their own folkloric history. Right. I mean, there are samurai and ninja and, and there are karatekai, you know, karate-type yeah. characters. 
but there are as often monks and Taoism and and Hinduism. You know, they, they pull from a wide variety of things. So, and and it seems surprising to me how infrequently, other than the Masamune makes many many appearances. There are a few things, but for the most part, it's not heavily Japanese, which is funny because the series is often considered like, oh, so super Japanese games. Like, not really. Kind of, maybe. Kind of a little bit. All right. The Mega Sisters. Mega Sisters. If I recall correctly, they show up first in Final Fantasy IV yeah. as as a boss, and there's the uh, the tall one, yeah, uh, the, the fat one, yeah, and the small one. Yeah. Yeah. And they're they're, they're kind of bug yeah. uh, themed, yeah. I guess. They're bug people. Girls. I don't people. know that they're meant to represent any particular uh, deity or folkloric figure, except that I think that they are meant to represent a sort of feminine trinity, uh, maid, matron, crone, child, mother, grandmother. Yeah. And then they show up as summons in Final Fantasy X. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then you get to you like in fi- like we've already mentioned in Final Fantasy X, you get to control the summons as though they were characters in your party, which is super fun. And the one I always thought was kind of interesting because, well, he plays a a pivotal role in the story, is Meduin in Final Fantasy VI, who is Terra's father. And I always felt weird summoning him into battle. Right. (laughs) That that always, that that, that does feel a bit, hey, Pop. Yeah, uh, that was a bit strange, but I he's mean, also got a, a character arc and and does not show up again. I would like to see another appearance from you know Meduin. where he shows up and you haven't seen him yet. Yeah, World of World Final Fantasy. Ah, uh, I'm ready for it. I'm ready for it. Okay, I'm going to ask a question that might be inappropriate. If you could summon your father back from the dead, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah I mean, yeah. see him do cool ass magic in battle, probably. Yeah. What, what would he, like, build something? Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. Uh. Not that I know a lot about it, but Maduin is based upon old Irish sea voyage tale, and that I've basically expended all my knowledge of that one. Like, <laughs> I was it. able to pronounce Cuculain from earlier, yeah. who's an Irish god of the death and stuff. At that. Uh, so then I'll transition to sea voyages because there's Siren occasionally. We sure, haven't talked Siren. much about Siren. Good appears call. in 6, appears again in 8. Uh-huh. Clear reference to the Iliad, Homer's... No, no uh, Il- Iliad is, uh, the Odyssey. Is it in the Odyssey? Yeah, because the Iliad is the Trojan War. The Odyssey oh, right, is right, right, Odysseus right. coming home. Right. And in that story, you're supposed to plug up your ears so you don't hear the, the, the Siren's call and then have to pay $5 for a cup of coffee. <laughs> you know that's the symbol of Starbucks, right? Correct. It's a siren. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Uh, but Odysseus, of course, wanted to hear it because he cannot help himself and must just make as much trouble as he can on this 10-year voyage home. Hubris. Right. So he get, he t- lets them tie him to the mast so he can hear the song. And that's actually one that works out fairly well for everybody. Yeah. Nobody gets turned into a pig or eaten by a cyclops. <laughs> I think another personal favorite for both of us, I would assume, and we've talked about this, a boss that becomes a summon, the Doom Train. The Doom Train. Or the Phantom oh, Train that was one of the more memorable boss battles in the franchise right. from six. Not just because Saban can suplex the train, though that's right. That's pretty cool. Pretty cool. Uh, or you can just hit it with a remedy. A phoenix down. Oh, a phoenix down. Okay, yeah. and and then end the fight. Yeah. But that's just a memorable dungeon in general the the train that takes souls to the other side 
it turns out Shadow's got this train robbing history and oh man yeah and then basically in Final Fantasy 8 yeah you can summon the doom train to just run hit, over stuff hit your opponents <laughs> with a train it's really cool animation though and the the crossing guard comes down yeah the crossing guard it's always funny when there's like a t-rex hanging out there too and the crossing guard comes down and, and nobody thinks hey hey well, i just step over this move oh you don't suppose anything bad's gonna happen do you <laughs> doom train doom train uh another personal favorite of mine for final fantasy 7 hades that is a pretty cool looking one it's cool the only animation. time hades shows up yeah right? Because uh, usually they use, great. like, Diablos or right. or something else, and Diablos is more a, a Christian mythology right. uh, character. Oh, yeah. Quetzalcoatl from 8, one I always really liked, never was here. Like, they got a little creative, I guess, with their lightning ones in a little while there. They sure. went away from Ramu, and I'm all for Ramu, but Quetzalcoatl was cool. Like, Quetzalcoatl's cool, based upon a South American right. monster of a flying snake lightning creature. Maybe that's part of why I like it, too. That would be cool to see a little bit more South American. Like, there's some in these games, but yeah, it's probably one yeah. of the cultures they draw on the least. So, Drew, Final Fantasy X is weird in a lot of ways. Yeah. One of the weirdest things to me is that you can eventually summon the tortured soul of the bad guy's mother. Yeah, yeah. So, I guess Meduin... Ain't got nothing on Anima. I guess. Yeah, as far as summoning the, the tortured souls of, of family members, parents, yeah. Anima is a, a creepy, weird, interesting one. Very popular. I I agree. I was always kind of weirded out by it. The yeah. whole deal. But unique, memorable. Sure. You're not going to forget that thing once you see it. Right. I don't... It's uh, it's not one that appeals to me, if nothing else, because it's sort of a grotesque character design. Right. And then just the story, like I always, it's slightly off-putting to summon Terra's dead father to assist you in combat. But there's a sort of connection there. There, you have a connection to the Espers. You have their essences, but they've given them to you willingly. Right. Anima is chained up, <laughs> and and you're really forcing her against her will to come from the Nether Realm come from a sort of a version of hell and assist you i just i never felt right about summoning anima and i yeah. really didn't do it and le- i think it might be storyline necessary a couple times but i really yeah. did not yeah it's got some crazy cool looking attacks though i will say but yeah nah not one of my favorites but i know a lot of people really like her so fair enough i guess and another super popular one <laughs> The 10-minute like, cutscene. The 10-minute cutscene known as Knights of the Round. Knights of the Round frickin' table. It's awesome. It like, is awesome. It's cool. And it's not just the amount of effort it takes to get the damn thing, which is a story unto itself, right. how much time it takes to go it's get that. the but. only way you can defeat the weapons, right? right. You, you you got to double cast yeah. Knights of the Round. Yeah. And then go get a soda. Yeah. Make a sandwich. <laughs> right. It was going to take a while. Uh, Arthur shows up last. But again, if we're drawing from Hindu mythology and Greek mythology and Norse mythology and Persian and mythology, like, why not grab one of the more famous sure. myths of the more Western world? Right. And something, it's like, it, I think that's funny because it probably felt a little bit out of place in some ways. 
Well, but it's like always been an Excalibur since the right. first one. There's always been an Excalibur. This is the first time though that Arthur and twelve Knights of the Round Table show up to right. to lay the smack down, <laughs> as we would say in the nineties. And, and boy, do they! they boy, lay, do they! They lay yeah. a lot of smack down. All right, let's wrap it up with two that are both most favoritists, though. I know we're not doing that. Well, we, we've looked at some lists recently, and. From an objective understanding of other people's lists, certainly they see them as favorites. I would have a hard time seeing anyone excluding these two summons from any conversation, no matter how short on the topic. We want to wrap up talking about Alexander and the King of Dragons, Bahamut, who, Bahamut, as we yeah. mentioned, face off mm-hmm. in Final Fantasy IX. And who wins that fight? Alexander, Alexander wins the fight. Look, ba- I've, I've got a. I like Bahamut. Bahamut's cool. Bahamut does that status quo change in Final Fantasy One when he upgrades your characters from their sort of kitty look to the adult look. Bahamut's uh, an indelible image uh-huh. for Final Fantasy. But cool dragons are almost too easy, at least as far as I'm concerned. I got nothing oh. against Bahamut, but the Mega Flare attack is is basically flying Godzilla dude. Kicking butt, looking cool, and that's great and all, but I am partial. Oh, that's awesome, but yeah, <laughs> and and that's fine. But I, I'm partial to the living fortress, who I I assume is based upon Alexander the Great, but I don't know that for sure. I, I would have to be. I mean, there are like twenty five Alexandrias right. cities, so for it to be a city or a fortress, for right. it to be based on one of the greatest conquerors of all time, yeah. Right. So the fortress robot butt kicker Alexander. If nothing else, I have to assume that that fortress has a library, and as a librarian, I must be partial <laughs> to the uh, someone that must have a library in it. because the Library of Alexandria is is a, a historical touchstone. So Bahumet uh, appears to be of Arabic origin, also related to the word behemoth which would be a recurring monster in Final Fantasy, as like a gigantic fish or monster beneath the oceans. But as we have already said in Final Fantasy, Bahamut is the king of the dragons. He has Godzilla atomic breath. And even though if I were to choose who I think would win in a fight between the two, I'm always going to go with Alexander because he won and he's the best. (laughs) Bahamut is undeniably cool. Also, one of the few characters that's in every single Final Fantasy game... Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure he is a, a monster character or summon in all of the numbered Final Fantasies. He shows up in World of Final Fantasy, and then they do this fun thing with his name, because Bahamut's almost like his class, and then he's got another name, which is a lot of fun. Yeah. Have you gotten there? No. It's cool. Okay. I'll oh, dig it. Yeah. Bahamutian soldiers they've got, yeah. Yeah, the Bahamutian soldiers. Yeah, Bahamut is, is undeniably important as king of the dragons across the Final Fantasy multiverse yeah and i think also too in a way like you said it and and now you're making you're making your argument i think well made and i agree with pretty much everything you said but even in that as you were describing bahamut you described something that is quintessentially final fantasy it's a mixture of japanese godzilla Mm -hmm. but dragons which are not chinese dragons but more definitely european European dragons dragons. Yep. yep um and the the Bahamut name being this uh, deep beneath the sea fish potential uh, origin. Mm-hmm. Um, so in a way, I think 
if you're stepping outside of it and not just saying, hey, who would win in a fight or who's got the more? Because I actually agree that Alexander is the more interesting character design because Bahamut is basically a cooler version of a dragon we've seen a bunch of times. Right. But if you're talking about something as a symbol for the Final Fantasy franchise, Bahamut stands as, I think, as great a symbol of it for anything. It's something that's immediately familiar. That's a dragon. I know what a dragon is. But you don't know this right. dragon. Exists. Right. This because dragon's the, different. the name is based on the, the, the Arabic word. And then, yeah, the and sometimes looks like Godzilla. And Fair sometimes enough. Bahamut's incredibly intelligent. In fact, uh-huh. Final Fantasy XV. Right. Very oh, important. Man. And oh, so man. it's not just a beast that you summon to do these. There's a lot of different iterations of him and his mm-hmm. different powers. Like you said, he gives you the power to be the light warriors in the very right. first game. And so for all the different roles that he plays... For everything, the, the character design is still good, and as maybe not quite as original as some of the others, but robot fortress with a library in it, and almost assured, and a laser beam eyeball. That's right. Alexander's uh, awesome. All right, before we wrap up with the big themes of all the summons, Ira, we're going to do something I know you're loath to do, and that is. Mm-hmm try to rank them to some degree. Now, I will admit this is very difficult, and we're not going to try to give you a definitive top five or top ten. Those kinds of lists exist. Uh, We find them fun to look at and see what other people's favorites are, but there's certainly no objective top ten list of the best summons in Final Fantasy history. I'm not even sure how you would define best. But I do think that we can, you know, kind of separate out a kind of top tier of, if not the best, the most indelible, memorable, recognizable, uh, impactful summons in the history of Final Fantasy. And we've maybe already done that here by highlighting them more than the others. Uh, but but I think it's, uh, I don't know, do you think it's fair to say there's a, a relatively clear kind of top tier set when you see a, a particular summon and you go, yeah, that's that's one of the ones. Yeah, I think part of that definition should include multiple appearances, right? Like uh, th- there are some that when you think of summons in Final Fantasy, you tend to think of at least these six or seven, uh, you know, depending on which ones you've played. And there are some that just appear in every game as summons. And, and some of those guys have broader storyline roles. And, and I think that helps to uh, put them in the position of, uh, as you say, indelible. Right. So I think very clearly everyone would agree that Ifrit, Shiva, Alexander, Bahamut make up maybe even a comfortable, that might even be your Mount Rushmore if you want to look at it that way, right? You've got four faces. I, I do think that Ramu's got to be in there somewhere because usually Ifrit ah. and Shiva are joined by Ramu, right? Like right. that's the, in. Uh, I'm replaying World of Final Fantasy right now and it's Ifrit, Shiva, and Ramu. Uh, like in six, it's just... Uh, uh, Ifrit and Shiva that you meet down in the uh, in the experimentation chambers, but it's Ramu who who pulls you to where Terra is, right? So right. usually, if there's if there's going to be a trio that has storyline significance, it's those three. So then maybe the Mount Rushmore is Ifrit, Shiva, Ramu, and Bahamut. As much as Alexander is a personal favorite of both of ours, but he might round out the the top five. Sure, sure. That's. Uh, Certainly, they would all be included in my list of indelible images. But, you know, I think there, there are others that it would be hard to leave off that list, too. Like, you know, 
how, how are we going to include Alexander but not Odin? Sure. Yeah, I think there's an interesting list. So I, I think if you're trying to be really extra harsh, which I don't know why you would be on something like this, but you could <laughs> say, okay, the top, top S plus tier, if you see those tier ranking things, sure. could be S those plus, five. Huh? <laughs> right. Uh, but then you have this really great next group, which I think includes, as you said, there's Alexander, where does he go? Odin, Carbuncle, Phoenix, Leviathan. I think those are all indelible to the franchise, recognizable, elicit a pop, as they call it in pro wrestling, when they show up and it just gets you excited. Uh, so I don't know if those are the next tier down or if we just are more charitable and say those are all top tier Final Fantasy summons. Maybe Titan gets into that yeah. category. I, I think he's around where you start to go, okay, maybe that's the next tier down. But we still, that doesn't mean that you're awful. That next tier is still filled with great, wonderful monsters from over the years. Sure, sure. And well, and one of the ways to think of that uh, would be, uh, you know, what, what categories do they fulfill, right? So if if you need a pantheon for your Final Fantasy fifteen, for example, they chose summons that, that each embody the elements or one of the, you know, sort of landmass is Titan, right? The seas are Leviathan. Uh, Shiva is the, the ice and Ifrit is the bad guy. And, and Bahamut's sort of like the 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 god that oversees them all right and then eventually garuda shows up and also if you're lucky carbuncle if you got to do that uh right that little tutorial thing so i i think that's another way to think about it is is what uh roles do they fulfill and then what like what patterns are you trying to fill up so if you want the four elements plus ice and dragon well then you've got your your eos pantheon right uh, and, you, and you don't need any others does odin fulfill a role that alexander doesn't uh, you know, it depends on who you ask, right? As we've said, I don't really like ranking things, uh, but I do think that we've hit, I, I think that does uh, sort of collect the ones that appear most often, most often have storyline roles, most often have a, a specialized or, or hyper-powerful role, maybe, uh, and that fit a breadth of magical elemental aspects. You know, when you're thinking of wh what is it strong against, what is it weak against, whatever monster you're facing, I think that fulfills all those elements. Yeah, I yeah, and and I think that's why they oftentimes come back to some of these same ones, and that gives them a huge leg up on the competition because we've seen not just Ifrit and Shiva so many times, but so many different versions of them, and have so many different kinds of connections to them, and so yeah, it just adds to all that. I will uh, finish this part up before we get into the wrap up as we're tier ranking here. Any ones that don't show up all that often that you just personally might go, ah, whatever, that's a top tier one anyone, uh, anyway, and why is it Yojimbo? Yeah, right, Yojimbo's, yeah, <laughs> good choice. Also, the Mega Sisters. Yeah. I always thought yeah, Ixion fits the same lightning motif as Ramu, but the fact <laughs> that it's a... Uh, interestingly enough. Yeah, yeah. And, and the fact that Ixion's a, a unicorn... Yeah. Is a badass looking unicorn really helps. That's Coddle, we mentioned. Sure. Sure. I like Valifor again, 10. Yeah. Uh, the, the uniques from 12 don't strike me. Not as much, no. I do like Siren quite a bit because we, do, we don't have an error themed summon yet, unless you count Garuda from 15, you know, in our, our list of, right. of indelible images. So, yeah, if, if I were making a Final Fantasy game with summons, I would want to make sure to include those ones i think 
maybe Phoenix and Ifrit have some overlap, but they might be like the yin and the yang of fire. Ifrit more destructive, Phoenix more more constructive, as it were. Right. So we like to try to end these discussions with an understanding of the broader theme or the, or the big question. What is essentially a game mechanic and something to design, you know, a design function of the game, an aesthetic function of the game. We didn't really do one last episode with the job system, but I think we can with this. Because these monsters are seen as extraordinarily powerful, in some cases, they are gods or they are tools of the gods. They are named after gods. Uh, they're named after figures in history and legend who are larger than life. And yet we, controlling the player characters, can summon them to battle, can control them, can bend them to our will or convince them to our cause. So if the summon monsters or aeons or eidolons or guardian forces are representative of deities, how does our hero's relationship with them inform our understanding of heroes, gods, and stories? Yeah. Mr. Creaseman, the floor is yours. You know, we were talking earlier about the Odyssey and the Iliad and, of course, the Epic of Gilgamesh. And in all of those stories, the gods play a role oftentimes directly interfering with events. I remember in high school when I first read the the battle between Achilles and Hector, I was very upset that the outcome is actually determined, I think by Athena. One of the gods just right. picks which one they want to win. And that really bothered me. In fact, that would, a phrase I would come to learn that most of us know by now and consider, a lot of people consider it automatically poor sto storytelling. It's not, but deus ex machina. Right. Which directly translates to God in the machine. Right. Which is when a deity can just step in and solve your problem. Right. But I think, as we've said before on this podcast, what we think this franchise does and what those stories do really well is allow the gods to work as extensions of human thought, feeling, belief, endeavor. Sure and that they are separated from their humanity in certain ways, which allows us to look at them as symbols. There's, there's a separation there. But I think with the deities in Final Fantasy, especially when they're used best, they are used that way as a mirror of the extreme whatever aspect of humanity. We were talking about Ifrit as a symbol of masculinity, aggressiveness, fire, the, and then... then Shiva being the yin to that yang. And I think a lot of times in these stories, again, when they're done especially well, the inclusion of the deities, when they are more godlike, has a similar effect as it does in those ancient stories where our hero's journey is not necessarily undercut. It is aided by the deity who we find out can't do everything for you. Right. I think it also speaks to those stories where the gods oftentimes stand in the way. So Poseidon does not want Odysseus to get home because Poseidon blinded his son Polyphemus, uh, the Cyclops, and then bragged about it, which, dude, I mean, very impressive getting away from the Cyclops, but couldn't you have kept 
freaking mouth shut. <laughs> right. So, so the gods often stand in the way, and if you take Poseidon as a, a strict uh, understanding just from the story, Poseidon is just a cranky dad, the story becomes about overcoming a more powerful individual. At the same time, Poseidon represents the ocean. He's got to travel between Troy and Ithaca. He's trying to get back home. And so in that way, it becomes a story about a man versus nature, a man's big fat mouth versus nature. So in the same way, I think the summoned monsters from Final Fantasy can sometimes function in a similar role. The the king of Baron wants to overcome the gods in a way, right? right? He wants to remove their influence and take over the world for a wizard from the moon. Like you do. <laughs> as, as sometimes happens. Yeah. In the same way, Sid is trying to free us from the influence of the gods in Final Fantasy XII. Uh, and in Type Zero, that Sid of Militus is trying to remove us, I say us, is trying to remove humanity from this constant recurring prophecy of everyone getting wrecked every thousand years or so. And so sometimes removing the gods as an obstacle is a way for humanity to take its free will back. But sometimes it's a removal of an understanding of the natural world. And so it's not always a clear cut, the gods are bad or the gods are good, depending on which Final Fantasy you're in. Sometimes it's the gods are obstacles to free will, and sometimes it's the gods are an understanding of the natural world. And you gotta admit, if you could just summon the gods to do your bidding and, and light up your enemies, you'd probably do it. Yeah. Like, we all think we're good people. It's like that question, would you rather have the superpower of flying or invisibility? And if you say invisibility, it's because you want to abuse it, and if you say you're flying, it's because you're lying. Or so the theory goes. Right. Most people would like to say that they are good people and would not abuse their power, Death Note. <laughs> but when given the power of the gods, you know, would we be corrupted or would we fight against it? Right. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening and thank you to everyone who's reached out to us. Feel free to let us know what we missed, got wrong, or should have mentioned. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at FFWeeklyPod, or you can email us at FinalFantasyWeekly at gmail.com. You can also find us at Patreon.com slash FFWeekly for more episodes and content, and be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Join us next time when we fall down a hole, talk to a crystal, and set off in an airship. Or three. <laughs>